Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hey guys, welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny with Kristen and Jen. We are two different people, by the way. Hey, Jen. <laughs> you two guys of us. are wondering why we mentioned that. We put up a recording of our podcast on our social media and we're flooded with comments being like, wait, I didn't realize you were two different people. And I know <laughs> we look kind of similar. Maybe this is a message from the universe saying I should dye my hair dark brown and go with mm-hmm. like my natural color so people can tell us apart. Seriously. Um, but it's funny because like we've run into it even in the past where our parents have seen videos of us yes. and mistaken one for the other, right? No, my dad, I showed him a video that Jen did and he was like, you look so great. You look really good in that video. And I was like, well, that's because it's not me. <laughs> He's like, oh. oh my God, I love your dad. He's like oh. the only person who's ever made a comment like that on one of my videos. The rest are like, pluck that brow. <laughs> I'm like, I can't. I'm almost 40. It's the one eyebrow that has a mind of its own that just from one day the next turned on me. I mean, I was going to say, I feel like everyone else our age, because back in the 80s or I guess 90s, it was the thing to like make your eyebrows super thin. Right. So then like they don't grow back. So like if you overpluck them when you're young, then they just stay like that. If somebody had told me that that was the perils of Mm -hmm. 90s eyebrow plucking, I might have thought differently. Um, And and I'm terrified to do nothing against people who get tattoos or any kind of permanent makeup, but I'm way too terrified to do any kind of microblading or anything like that. I don't know what that is. What is that? It's where you basically get like a semi-permanent, almost a tattooing of your eyebrow. So, um, yeah, I don't know exactly how it works, but they put pigmentation on your skin and it's, it's semi-permanent. I don't think it lasts forever. I do think it's something you need to maintain, Mm. but I'm terrified. I have a permanent bracelet and that's the closest I think I'll ever you got get to one? What? Oh yeah. I love it. I've had this for ages. Have you not noticed? Wait, what do you mean? Oh, it's like an actual bracelet. Yeah. It's a oh, permanent just bracelet, take but off. there's no clasp. Well, that's like my the Cartier bracelets where you I mean you can take oh, it off. You need a squirt so fancy. Super fancy. <laughs> no, it's annoying though. You walk through airport security. Oh, the screen the baby screams are back. That's it's downpouring okay. here. I love the baby screams. Oh, oh I don't. It's so, been one of those mornings. You gotta reboot the computer, reboot the baby. Yeah, well, because it's downpouring outside. Don't have a they don't have a clasp or anything, and there's no way to undo it except to cut it off. So <sighs> they 
I mean, it's very cheap. These things are like a hundred bucks, but they say if you need to get it cut off for surgery or for a C-section or whatever, they'll, they'll redo it once. Actually, when I had Grace, the screaming child in the background, again, I was wearing (laughs) this bracelet that when you go through airport security, it will go off sometimes. And they're like, you need to take it off. And you're like, well, I don't have the screwdriver. And then when I had Grace, I was in the hospital and they want you to take all of your jewelry off just in case they think like something goes wrong and they need to do an emergency, need an emergency surgery. section, yeah. Yeah. And they also, they stick that thing in. I forget, like a hep lock or something. The it's IV. Annoying, it's, which it's, is the most miserable part of the birthing process. That is the, the worst part. Process. You're sitting there and you and I both went through very similar birthing processes, except for yours took a fraction of the time. <laughs> <line check. laughs> well, because no, we neither of us got any meds. So we both did right. the like med-free birth, which was... Uh, an accident they, for me the first time, but yeah. They don't want to have to put an IV in you under emergency circumstances. So they yeah. like get it started yeah. and they're doing it in like your hand or your oh, arm it's awful. and you're yeah. in labor and you're so uncomfortable and, and you have this I don't like out getting IVs. Right. And they're like, don't worry, it'll be taped down. It won't bother you. It bothers That's you. Not true. It bothers no. you. Yeah. And then, and then after you have the baby. So my first daughter, she was born eight minutes after I got to the hospital. I had to stick that wow. thing in. And then I had the baby and I was like, take this thing back out. And they're like, yeah. no, we need to leave no. it in you for the two days that you're here just in case. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, can't you just in case just re-stick me? Like, I don't care. Take this thing oh, out. Oh gosh. And I had this like massive bruise from it oh, for like yeah, when it, month. Oh, it was yeah, miserable. When it blows a vein like that, it's so <laughs> awful. You look like you've been mutilated. Yeah. Um, it's awful. But no, so I was sitting there and I literally took it off as I'm like going through contractions with my fingernail. <gasps> and uh yeah, I was just like sitting there trying to unscrew something that normally is done by a screwdriver. That's like well, people I, like, telling stories of like lifting cars mm-hmm. off of babies, you know? Well, because like, I had to get the darn thing off. I mean, I think it would have been fine if I'd left it on. I'm sure people have babies and leave, you know, one piece of jewelry on. But yeah, I, I did get it off. So, yeah. No, well, that's the, the whole thing. They'll bracelets. cut it off you if you have to go into surgery. Oh, yeah. No, I would not be happy about that. Right. That's what insurance is for. (laughs) That's why mine only costs $100. (laughs) I know. Well, actually, one of my best friends who she's a plastic surgeon and she really wanted to get one, but she unfortunately cannot because (laughs) she's like, I go into surgery. I can't have a bracelet that I can't easily take off. Exactly. Exactly. So guys, I know we've been doing a lot of interviews lately and I'm sure you've all just been hankering for a good old fashioned Wall Street skinny, me and Kristen sitting down to chat. So today we thought we'd do a Q&A. We've compiled so many great questions from you guys, and we always try to make them a little bit connected and, and try to keep with a consistent theme. And mm-hmm. as always, if we don't get your question today, we promise we will in the future. So mm-hmm. hang tight. So the first question we're going to tackle, we got this actually just last night from Crypto Trader 321 on TikTok, <laughs> who kindly said, I love your videos. Keep making them. Don't Aww. worry, we will. Um, <laughs> but he or she asked, could you please explain the difference between a trader at an options prop slash market maker and sales and trading? Now, I'm going to take this question and interpret what I think you're asking, Crypto Trader 321. And if we totally miss the mark on this, I apologize. We'd love to hear from you. But basically, what I think you're asking is what's the difference between prop trading and what happens in the sales and trading that we talk about in an investment bank? So first of all, for those of you who are not used to the abbreviation, prop trading stands for proprietary trading, meaning trading your own money. 
Now, this used to be something that was ubiquitous across the street at banks. You would have the Lehman Brothers prop desk, the Morgan Stanley prop desk, the Credit Suisse prop desk. And all these banks would be trading money that's backed by the deposits at that institution if it took deposits at the time. Back in the early heyday of the 2000s, when Kristen and I started in the business, this was the big sexy thing. You were basically running a little mini hedge fund at a bank. Mm -hmm. So it's great because you had all the stability of the big institution around you. And that was a buffer with which you could then take risk and hopefully make outsized returns. Unfortunately, there were some very big outsized (laughs) losses, which if you have Mm -hmm. not listened to our episode about the fall of Lehman Brothers and the financial crisis of 2008, that's worth a listen. I think the Morgan Stanley prop desk, when you were there, Kristen, you told Mm -hmm. this story during that episode, had like a $9 billion intraday loss on some of their MBS positions. And I called you being like, are you okay? (laughs) Yes, 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 you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You told that that story. And I was like, are you all right? I'm okay over here at Lehman. Like, is Lehman no I was like, everything's great at Lehman. Yeah, we're fine. So after the financial crisis of 2008, with the Dodd-Frank regulations being put into place to kind of limit banks' ability to take risk, something (laughs) called the Volcker Rule was passed. And the Volcker... God, that's a hard one for me to say. (laughs) And the Volcker Rule was designed to minimize proprietary trading at banks. It basically regulated it out of existence. Now, there are some exceptions within the rule, and that rule is actually still kind of constantly debated. So it's a very fuzzy thing. And I'll get to that in a second. But it's the kind of thing also that could always be rolled back. Now, I think in the current kind of political environment, no one's really like, you know what banks should be doing? Taking more more price trading. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's risk up those banks a little bit more. I don't think anyone's feeling that way in the summer of 2023. I could be wrong. Um, (laughs) But it basically made it so that if you want to take proprietary risk, meaning trading the firm's own money, you need to go outside a bank. You need to go to a buy side firm, an asset manager, a hedge fund where you're trading someone else's money, or you go to what is called a prop shop. And that is where you are trading your own money. So if we wanted to form the Wall Street skinny prop shop, Kristen and I would pull together our $5 Mm -hmm. and we'd go trade that in the markets. And we could have any strategy. I could say, okay, we are a global macro prop shop. We are going to trade interest rate futures and S&P futures, stocks, bonds, whatever it might be. And we are also going to pay ourselves out however much we basically want because we don't have any investors that we are beholden to. This is our money. So we eat what we kill. We're going to pay ourselves out a huge proportion of this and only maybe reinvest some portion back into the company. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine this on a bigger scale. You get several men and women together who want to pull their capital together to form a prop shop. And now they're all trading together. This pool of assets grows. As you make returns, some of that's reinvested in the company versus being just paid out. And as that pool of capital grows, you can take larger and larger positions, make your money continue to grow. Maybe you even bring in some traders who aren't making huge capital contributions, but are trading on your behalf if they're really talented and you're paying them out some portion of those profits as well. Mm -hmm. This is different from, say, a hedge fund, something we've talked about a lot as a way to make outsized returns. Because again, with a hedge fund, sure, you're probably going to have some very senior partners at the hedge fund who have their own money invested in that hedge fund. But by and large, that giant pool of capital is other people's monies, is institutional investors' monies, the money of pension funds, things like that. Mm -hmm. So they pay themselves out Typically, again, we've talked about that 2 and 20 fee structure, meaning a 2% fee 
on top of all the money that's put in. And then 20% of the profits are paid back to the people within the fund. Okay. And we've talked about fee compression. We've talked about how that fee structure is not necessarily uniform throughout Mm -hmm. the hedge fund world. But generally speaking, you are limited in terms of how much of that profit you pay back to yourself within the hedge fund. The rest of those profits goes to the investors who've given you that money. So what's very different about a prop shop from what happens at an investment bank in the sales and trading division is that the sales and trading division of an investment bank is not in the business of expressing views. The traders there are in the business of making markets. They are in the business of facilitating client trades. So the prop shop is the client and the investment bank, the traders at the investment bank in the sales and trading division are the market makers. So if the prop shop comes in and wants to buy 100 million tenure notes, it is the trader's job at the bank in sales and trading to make them a market, to be the seller for that buyer and vice versa. Now, there is risk inherent in taking any position. So there is going to be a charge embedded in that trade in the form of a bid offer spread. And the trader is trying to capture that bid offer spread at the investment bank to compensate them for the risk of taking on that position. Now, In a oversimplified world, they will then go and hedge out every single position and just capture that bid offer spread and pick up pennies in front of a steamroller. But there is discretion allowed within these investment banking trading books so that the trading desk can make more money than just that bid offer spread, right? And guess what? You're not going to make the bid offer spread on every single trade. Some trades you'll lose money on, right? But let's say that the prop shop comes in and wants to buy 100 million tenure notes. If I, as the trader, the market maker at the bank in the sales and trading division, have the view that prices are going to go down, I might not cover that short immediately. I might let it ride. I might let it ride for a day. I might let it ride for a week. It all depends on my view. And I can apply my own discretionary view on the market to that position and make excess returns on having facilitated that trade by not hedging it out immediately. There are tight risk limits that I will be held to. So if that position starts going against me, and I've lost $10,000, no one's probably going to blink an eye. If I lose $100,000, someone's going to say, hey, what's going on? If I lose a million dollars on that position, someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, like, how strong is your conviction in this trade? What are we doing here? And if I lose $10 million on that trade, I'm probably not going to have a job tomorrow. So there are risk limits within which those traders on the sell side can operate. They don't just have free reign. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, to your point too, it's like when you're talking about going out and covering the short, if you have, as you were putting it, like something very liquid, right? So like a Mm -hmm. 10-year note, well, yeah, you can easily go find that. So if you've sold these 10 years, you can go buy it on the other side. It gets a little trickier as you start to get different types of more illiquid securities, what have you. So it's not always, and you should go back and listen to the what is sales and trading episode. I think that's what we named it these days. (laughs) But uh, Jen gets into like such a great explanation on market making. Yeah, no. and, And I think market making is not fully understood by everyone because again, when we say, well, we don't allow proprietary trading at the banks. Okay. Well, aren't they taking a proprietary position then if they express that view by not covering their short? But The bank is also in the business of making money. So there's kind of this fine line that they are walking every single day between allowing traders to take some discretionary views in the process of making markets. Because guess what? If you lose money on every single client trade, you can't make markets for too long. (laughs) Right. And because some of these desks are facilitating hundreds, if not thousands of client trades a week, they build up a very large book of positions 
that aren't all just neat little buy, sell, tenure notes. These are complex positions across the yield curve, across asset classes, across different, for example, expiries of options, which we'll get into later in this episode, hopefully. So they end up building a complex portfolio that then has its own inherent risk because everything isn't just perfectly hedged out. And then they have to trade that ongoing inherent risk of the portfolio from day to day to Mm -hmm. either A, keep from losing money, and or B, generate additional revenue for the firm. So it's all part and parcel of the job. Unlike at a prop shop, however, if you are a great trader and you make hundreds of millions of dollars trading that portfolio of books and facilitating those client flows, you are going to get paid out a relatively small percentage of that profit because it's not your money that you're trading around. Whereas if you're at a prop shop, you can keep as much of that as you want. You make the rules because it's your own money. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I hope that answers your question, Crypto Trader three two one. And if it yeah. doesn't, shoot us a note, and we'll try to figure out what you're asking. And this kind of just goes back to something that I did want to just address when Jen and I were entering the business, going to work in sales and trading. We talked about how it was like the quote unquote big sexy thing because you had these prop traders at these banks who, if you had a good trader. And they're making, I mean, like, you know, if you can lose $9 billion, you can make $9 billion. Correct. You have these traders at Morgan Stanley back like pre-2007 making these huge trades. They're making $9 billion for the bank. They're going to get paid pretty well. Now- if That's they a then, really good point. The payout structures were much different within yeah. the banks for the prop traders mm-hmm. than they are now for guys who are market makers. Exactly. And so you could have someone who was young who started to do very well, right, as this prop trader that then gets lured over to some hedge fund where they are making these outsized astronomical returns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By the way, those people who are making those outside returns, not the norm. Like you've got to be a superstar. You've got to be great at managing risk. You've got to be able to also take risk. It takes a certain type of personality it and really does. most people are not going to be good at it. However, Correct. the people who are were then able to obviously do very well. That is not the norm. But the point was everyone is so focused on private equity these days. When we did that poll on our Instagram, it was like, who's interested in sales and trading? And there was like one person. <laughs> it was probably me. I was and like, I was I probably Jen. I was like, I gotta represent here. Yeah, it is, it is funny, right? And we've touched on this a, a lot, but we get pushback sometimes from people talking about, oh, it's impossible to make that much money when you're that young at a trading seat. And it's because people don't really talk about it anymore. So just as so many people look to the investment banking division of a bank as a path to the buy side to private equity, there is equally a path that is very well established from the sales and trading division for traders, also for salespeople though, to go to the buy side as well. The path for them, though, is not going to be to go to private equity. It's going to be to go to hedge funds and asset managers. But because hedge funds and asset managers aren't the big sexy thing right now, it's private equity much more so, the desire to necessarily break into your career from the sales and trading side has lessened because people don't hear that as being a path to private equity. I wonder how many people are thinking to themselves, I am the top 1% of 1% of intellect, trading, Mm risk-taking, everything. I think I can do this. I think I can be that kid who's earning a crazy amount of money trading because I really believe in myself. Yeah. All right. So the next question we're going to do, this was from TimeBop2000. We love you, TimeBop, by the way. Thank you so much for asking so many questions. And great questions. So he asked, I have a question. Or she. Oh, that's true. Do we Sorry. know time bops sex? We don't actually. Okay. So 
I have a question. I was studying DCF modeling and I came by something called R squared. Can you explain it? And is it actually used in practice? From what I understand, they use R squared in cap M to measure if the assets beta represents it. And if the R squared is low, it's preferred to use industry beta. I was just wondering if it is the investment bank that decides whether to use the asset beta or industry beta. Okay. I'm going to go get a coffee and go watch The Real Housewives because uh, my brain is done after that question. No, I think it's a really interesting question and I'm excited. Excited to see how you answer it. If anyone is still listening to our podcast after after that that dramatic reading, (laughs) I'm going to simplify this question. Yeah, um, let's break it down into what's the actual question here. So the question is about something called R squared in the context of choosing a beta for CapEx. So if you have never studied finance, you're like, I just heard a lot of gobbledygook. So let's explain. Well, okay, I'm let's actually take a let's, step back. Let's pull out let's those three back. terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Capem, beta, and R squared. <laughs> Capem. Cap. No one it's says Capem. Like, 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 <laughs> no, it's Capem. <laughs> so turn the ship around. Cap- I know. All right. So we are going to get into the weeds a little bit. You've been warned. You can fast forward through this question if you DJ. No, it stick with us. I, I, I GAF. Jay, I'm glad that you do, Jen. Okay. So taking a step back. So DCF, right? That is your discounted cash flow. And we're actually going to talk a little bit more about it later in the episode. But it's just a valuation methodology where you're trying to figure out what a company is worth based on the cash flows they're spitting out into the future. Now, if you wanted to add up the cash flows that are being generated in the future, those cash flows in the future are not worth as much as the cash flows today. And so you need to Why discount not? them. Well, time value of money, Jen. Time value of I know, money. I know. I'm leading the witness. I'm you sorry. are. It's no, but it's good. Because if you are waiting a year or two years or five years or 10 years, A, right, there is inflation. We've just seen record high levels of inflation, but there's also the risk inherent. Like, are you actually going to get those cash flows back? So essentially the money in the future is worth less than today. You could also take that cash if you had it today and you could invest it, right? You could get a return. I mean, today, if you, you were to put it into a treasury, five and a half percent. percent in like, and no, mm-hmm. in like a one month CD. Shoot. Yeah. So the point is that money in the future is worth less. So you have to discount those cash flows back. And when you're doing a DCF, you discount it using something called the WAC or the weighted average cost of capital. Just for context, like there is obviously a lot that can be said about the WAC. In fact, we have put together a whole series of these like educational videos on TikTok and I think I covered the DCF in one three-minute video. It took me three, three to four-minute videos to explain the WAC. So just to give you a sense, like there's a lot that goes into this. But in order to calculate the WAC, one of the inputs you need is something called the cost of equity. So how as expensive is it to sort of fund a business with equity? And again, to get the cost of equity, you need something called the beta. So one of Jen's favorites, this is the Greek. And the beta represents how much something, an asset moves relative to the overall market. So for example, we right, use these mm-hmm. Greek symbols throughout finance to simplify talking about things. But all mm-hmm. I think it ends up doing is it's making complicating it, more it mysterious and for everyone. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're like, oh, the beta of my gamma on this thing is really all about the theta. <laughs> well, <laughs> we are going to cover saying? beta and gamma, I think later in this episode. So stick maybe, around. Maybe we'll get to it. I don't maybe. know. That's We're going to get in the weeds here. On the I deck. know. Okay. So if a company has a beta of 1.5, it means yeah, that- Yeah, what does that mean? So it means that the way that the equity moves relative to Their the overall stock market- price. Yeah, the stock price movement, if you have a beta of 1.5, it means that, that if the market benchmark, so say the S&P, if it goes up 1%, the stock will go up 1.5%. If the S&P goes down 1%, you'll go down 1.5%, right? You are riskier than the overall market, essentially. And so we use that beta in our WAC calculation. So- 
the next question we need to now get to is, all right, well, how do I find this beta? There is a divergence between what the academics say you should do and what is actually done in practice. I'm going to decision tree. Scandal. I know. I'm going to decision tree out. Are you doing it in practice on the buy side or on the sell side? Are you doing Mm. it for a bank or are you doing it because you're actually trying to value a business and decide if you want to invest in a company? Okay. So let's actually start with the academic theory. Academic theory says that you should always use a predicted beta. How do you think the company's equity is going to move relative to the market in the future? Because so, you're discounting future cash flows. Yeah. So you want to think mm-hmm. about how what it's going to be like in the future versus in the past. Exactly. And so in practice, if you wanted to get that predicted beta, there actually is a source for that. There is something called Beras, and they publish these betas. And so you can look up like, what is the beta? You often can pull that from like Backset, right? You can just get that number. Great. Problem is, it's a little Fact bit of a black being, box. Again, just another tool that you'll have at your disposal yeah. at an investment bank. Yeah. So you can just look it up on FactSet. But now I'm going to go to our decision tree. So that's the academic theory. Use a predicted beta. Now here's the problem. So in practice, I'm going to go to the sell side decision tree. So I'm going to, you are the investment banker who maybe has been hired to do a fairness opinion on some company, right? So you are trying to say, what is the value of this business? And it's going to actually go into like an SEC filing to support the valuation that is paid in this acquisition. You mm-hmm. want to support that Twitter's valuation was like the 4420 or whatever he paid. These banks had to put a fairness opinion, went into these filings. Great. So when banks are doing that, what do banks care about? They don't want to get sued. And guess what? I saw a stat, anywhere from like 75 to north of 75% of acquisitions end up in lawsuits. So if you are the bank that is hired to have to justify your assumptions- Sorry to interrupt you. I can't wait till we do our episode about bankers versus lawyers. <laughs> I know, I'm really too. excited for that. Sorry, no, go ahead. Be fun. But yeah, so if you are the banker, you want to be able to justify your assumptions. You get called up on the stand and it's like, how did you come up with this beta? Or how did you come up with this discount rate? Well, you want to be able to justify it. So the problem with Barra's betas is they're a little bit of a black box. Now, if you apply that black box to everything, Okay. I mean, and some banks will choose to use that predictive beta. What a lot of companies prefer is actually to use the past betas, right? Because it's factual information. Anyone can go and they can look at the historical stock price movement relative to the S&P. Exactly. And so a lot of banks actually will use historical betas. So how do you get this historical beta? Well, unlike in business school, you don't have to just calculate it using like statistical regressions and all that shit. You go to Bloomberg. Bloomberg is like your best friend. So you go to Bloomberg, you type in the ticker symbol, you hit the beta. Well, actually, I think you have to hit equity first, and then I forget my yeah, Bloomberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a code. No, no, no. Yeah, you type code. in the ticker symbol, mm-hmm. equity, beta. Yes. Go. So what you're going to get- whole Bloomberg language we'll get into on another episode. Yeah. So the point, though, is that you go to Bloomberg, type in the information, and Bloomberg will spit out this graph. It's going to show you a regression of the historical trading prices of the stock against the S&P 500 or SPX, basically using weekly data over a two-year period. So on the x-axis, it spits out how the S&P has moved. And then on the y-axis, it's like, how has your stock moved? And then Bloomberg will apply a trend line to it. And the trend line, right, the Slope like if you remember line. your TI-83 when <laughs> yeah. you took like AB calculus or whatever right. back in high school, mm-hmm. like it's that. Yes. So the trend line, it spits out your slope of the line. That is your beta. Here's the thing. How good of a trend line is that? Is there very little relationship between the movement of the market and your stock? And so that's where R squared comes in. R squared tells us how much of the movement of the stock price is explained by the overall market, right? By the S&P and how much is explained by the independent variable, in our case, the the company itself. The idiosyncrasies of that company that have nothing to do with the movement of the overall market. It's just a statistical measure of how good a fit 
your trend line is. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a company that has a very low R squared, it means that the movement of the S&P are not really well explaining the movement of your stock. And so then the question is, great, if they're not really that related, instead of using the company's, should I maybe look at the company's peers? Should I look at how the movement of the industry- Look at their beta. Look at their beta. Mm -hmm. And so again, a lot of times you might do that. You might actually look at the beta of the industry. And this, by the way, you also would need to do this if you have a private company. Private company, you can't look at the company, how its stock is trading because it's not public. So this is something you would also do with a private company. And so now we get to this idea of an asset beta, which was asked about. So the thing is, is that with a beta, the movement of your stock, it is going to be influenced by leverage. It is influenced by how much debt the company has on it. And so if I want to look at peers- Can you talk about that for a second? Why? Why? Well, if you have a company that has a lot of leverage, right, it's riskier. So it's if you had a company that had no risk on it, had no mm-hmm. debt, it's it's not going to move as much. Mm-hmm. You have to essentially remove the added risk from the stock, if, if that makes sense. There is a formula for it. You stick the beta that you got from Bloomberg. You stick it into this equation. Poof, you have now unlevered your beta. That is called your asset beta. The unlevered beta where you've removed the leverage from the beta, mm-hmm. that is your asset beta. And that is what, if you were to look at the industry, right? If you look at company A, B, C, D, you take the mean or the median and you get what is the average of your peers. There is one last little wrinkle because guess what? That is the asset beta and your company that you're analyzing probably has debt on it. So there's another equation. You spit that back in and now you relever the beta up to that. The point though is that this, should you be using the industry average or should you, should you be using the company's beta itself? I mean- this again kind of goes back to like if you are a buy side firm and you can kind of do what you want because you're not sitting there trying to fend off like a potential lawsuit, you might say, well, what makes more sense? So yeah, if you have, if you have a low R squared, yeah, it might make sense to do that. If you have a company that has a short operational history, yeah, it might make more sense to use the industry. So average. that R squared becomes more of a factor in your decision tree on the buy side because Probably, you're yeah. using it as part of your critical thinking in your analysis. Yes. Versus Whereas on like, the sell side, mm-hmm. and I know where you're heading with this, go ahead. So on the sell side, there is a lot more just standards that are put in place because you don't want to be accused of manipulating your assumptions. So having so you do the these same are, thing these for are everyone. Assumptions. Yeah. Last little wrinkle, because I do want to make this point. So I made a comment that when you're going to Bloomberg, you take the the trend line, you get the slope. That is something called the raw beta. Now in practice, it's actually more common to use something called the adjusted beta. The adjusted beta is something you can also get from Bloomberg. It'll tell you the raw beta is this and the adjusted beta is this other number. You just take that adjusted beta. Technically what it is, is that there was this professor, I think from Morton, who found that over time, the betas of company stocks tend to trend towards one, tend to trend towards the average with time. And so there's this calculation where it's like you take two thirds of the raw beta plus one third times one, and that's your adjusted beta. Like that is the mathematical calculation. I'm not arguing for or against it. I'm just telling you most of the time, most banks will use that adjusted beta. And there we go. So (laughs) I hope this answers your question. I know there was a lot of weeds we got into there. So I I think basically the takeaway Mm -hmm. is that A, how much importance that R squared number has in your calculation depends first on what seat you're sitting in, where you're doing that calculation from. And secondly, regardless of how much that R squared factors into it, if you're working on the sell side, you may just be told, hey, listen, you're using this formula. It doesn't really matter. This is a blunt instrument and it's from a CYA standpoint and that's why we do it that way. 
Exactly. All right. Cool. Awesome. That was a great, that was very in-depth, Kristen. Very impressive. (laughs) Lots of weeds there, but. (laughs) Well, listen, since we're on the topic of Greeks, having talked about beta, let's talk about two others. So two of the most commonly used Greeks on the sales and trading side are going to be Delta and Gamma. And we got this question from user 569-711-583 on TikTok. If you're out there listening, I'm sure you heard your number and you're like, that's me. Again, you were very kind. You said, thanks to your great videos. We appreciate you. In trader lingo, is the time to expiry in an option, the difference between being long delta and long gamma? I hear these terms sometimes. So thank you for this great question because we are going to use your great question to talk about these two Greeks, Delta and Gamma. So first of all, let's explain the components of an option. Again, an option is the right, but not the obligation to do something at a future time. If I buy the right to purchase Amazon stock at $150 and it's trading for, I don't know where Amazon's trading today. Let's call it 135. Should we look that up? Where's Amazon? Sure, let me look it up. Stop. Thank you. Thanks, researcher. <laughs> Ooh, my new deodorant is not working. <laughs> 138. Damn, you wow, are pretty I'm good. good. I'm uh, good. I know. Oh, I knew I think, it had gone down to 120, and then I saw some I think we're going to need to keep that in. We'll definitely keep, the, we'll definitely keep the part about my deodorant not working in there, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if I buy what would be called a call option, a call mm. option is the right to buy something, a put option is the right to sell something. We touched on this briefly in our, um, in our succession episode, I think. But um, if I buy a call option on Amazon stock, there are going to be two main characteristics of this option, my expiry date and my strike price. So, okay, what is an expiry date? It is a preset day in the future where we are going to look at the price of the underlying asset, in this case, the price of Amazon stock, and see if our option to buy it for $150 is worth anything. We can have different types of expiries. We can have American options, which allow the owner of the option to exercise their option anytime up to and including the expiry date of the option. You can also have Bermudan options, which can be exercised a certain number of times prior to the expiry date. So let's say if I have an option that expires like a year from now, I might be able to exercise it once every quarter during that year. And then European options, which are actually the most common. So let's say in this case, my option has a three-month expiry, one finite expiry date. It's typically 11 a.m. on that day. And at 11 a.m., we look at where the underlying price is on our asset and we say, is it above or below the strike price on my option? And that will determine whether or not my option is what we call in the money. If it's in the money, it's worth something to me. I can either exercise that option via physical settlement, meaning I will actually take delivery of those shares of Amazon stock or what's called cash settlement, where the difference between my strike price and the underlying price on my asset is a cash amount that is calculated and I take home that money that day. So we've got an option expiry. The second feature of my option is my strike price, which is in this example, again, is $150 a share on Amazon stock. Since Amazon is currently trading at 138, my option, which is the right to buy Amazon stock at $150, is out of the money. If my option expired today, it would expire worthless because why would I want to buy something for $150 when I can go right out in the market and buy it for $138? So in calculating the value of my option, it's pretty clear that an important factor is going to be the price of the underlying stock. Now, there are multiple different characteristics 
of that underlying stock. The change in that stock price going up or down is called its delta. If you guys think about a good way to remember this, if you think about the airline Delta, where do you think they got that name from? Delta is a Greek symbol. It's a triangle. Yeah, I thought Delta stood for doesn't ever leave the airport. <laughs> nice. That's a dad joke. I know. I tried. <laughs> you said that so seriously. I was like, oh my God, am I going to get this wrong? Yeah, no, no, no. I just, uh, I heard that once and I was like, that's amazing. Actually, I think they're one of the better on time. I think they're like the best on time now, but back in yeah, the day, we're they American were terrible. Hub, so like, don't even get me started. <laughs> Although actually we, we got very lucky with our recent flights. So thanks American. Um, <laughs> But uh, so yeah, as the price on my underlying stock moves around, my option gains or loses value because it is closer or further away from being in the money. Because in this particular case, I've bought an option that goes up in value when the price of the underlying asset goes up, I am inherently long delta. Now I come from the interest rate world, right? So we can trade options that are either puts or calls on bonds or we can trade options that are actually called swaptions. That's not a made up word, even though it really sounds like it is. And a swaption is just a portmanteau. You're gonna, it's, a, it's an option on a swap. You're going to need to explain options to me with like one day. Swaptions. We'll do a whole episode on swaptions. But, like I understand um, options, swaptions. No, but it's it's just the same theory. I know, but it's like, this is like derivatives. Right it's like, I have to like tackle so much more stuff before my brain can be wrapped around that I get yet. It. I get it's it. Like, I you're need not used to thinking in rates. I know. Yeah. No. Again, just think of them as widgets. Um, <laughs> so is my widget going to go up or down? And that's really the case, right? So again, the options sensitivity to a change in the underlying rate is called its delta. But there is another driver of value in my option price. And that driver is the magnitude of the moves in the market. So think about it this way. What's a more volatile environment? One in which Amazon stock moves one cent up or down every day, or one in which Amazon stock is moving $10 up or down every day? Obviously, the latter is a more volatile environment. And the higher the volatility in the market, either realized or implied, which is a critical distinction that we're not going to get into today, generally speaking, the higher the price of my option will be. So not only is the change in my underlying delta going to impact the value of my option, but the rate at which my delta is changing is going to have a big impact on my short dated option as well. And this is called gamma. Gamma is the second derivative of that price function. So if delta tells us how much money we make or lose with one incremental change in the underlying asset, gamma tells us how much our delta is changing. So when you are long an option, especially a short dated option that is going to be more sensitive to changes in that underlying delta, you are not only in this case of the call option long delta, you are also long gamma. You want that price to be changing in bigger increments because that indicates a more volatile environment and you are long that volatility. Now, in my example, my option was what? $12 out of the money, right? For purposes of exaggeration, let's say I'd purchased a call option struck at $250 instead of $150. Do I really care if my option is struck at $250? If the underlying price of Amazon goes from $138 to $139 on a given day? No, but if my strike is 139, 
you better believe that I'm watching that stock price like a hawk all day, right? So the closer to being struck at the money your option is, the higher your gamma is because big movements in your underlying delta are going to have a bigger impact on your options value. I can also buy straddles where I'm buying a put and a call at the same time. We don't want to get too We always had call spreads. Be like, do a convert with a call spread. You can do spreads. You can do straddles. There are all kinds of fun, slightly suggestive names that we use in this market. (laughs) Um, But it's something where different views. So much of it, almost like you have to develop that intuition. I was saying this before. You really do. I mean, I am so comfortable with the idea of converts and with call spreads because it was something I saw all the time. And I did every day where it was. Was like it took me a full month. I got on the desk in this like converts world where it's like, ooh, the spread is this and the implied vol is that. And let's do this and and but like your brain is just like all this information. You just have to take it in, and then one day the lights turn on and you see the matrix. But you have to like be in it. And I still I get call spreads like those are like no big deal. But as soon as someone starts talking about a straddle, I'm like, what? Hold on, it's just like twister. Huh? Like what? <laughs> this right. stuff, I feel like it takes time. It takes being around this. But no, that's a great explanation. So, all right. So let's come off of trading strategies back to the corporate finance world. So the banking Yay. world. And we got a question on a video that I posted on TikTok explaining the leverage buyout analysis. And the question was, apparently in infrastructure and natural resources, private investing is different. They mostly use DCFs. Can you explain why this private asset class is so different if it's not a typical buyout, like for a toll road? And so I want to start actually with a clarification. So I always like to make this demarcation between valuation analyses and affordability analyses. Mm. So when we talk about the discounted cash flow analysis, we're talking about a valuation methodology. So you're trying to understand what the intrinsic value of the company is. What is the company worth? Now, what's a little bit confusing here is that when we talk about a leverage buyout, that really just has to do with the financing technique for buying a company. So you're buying a company and it's primarily funded with debt. Instead However, of cash or equity. Instead of a well, cash is the equity in the business. So if you buy a fully cash funded company, you are putting 100% equity into the business. So yes. Mm-hmm. So this analysis when it's done, what you are looking at, right? You still could do a DCF of this company, but you are looking at the IRR. And actually sorry, one more thing actually I should point out is that a leveraged buyout is not going to be appropriate for a ton of different types of companies. Mm-hmm. You tend to see people do leverage buyouts on plain, boring, vanilla, steady state companies. Like companies that have stability because you need to be able to get the leverage, you need to get the debt and debt investors, the, the lenders are conservative. So you have to have these like steady companies. So they, they don't the make sense The company has for, to have a certain level of credit worthiness yeah. in order to be able to take on all that debt. Exactly. So this strategy A is not going to make sense in a lot of situations. But what you are trying to do is understand what is the return to the financial sponsor. And so inherently what you're doing with a leverage buyout is you're looking at my financial buyer, my private equity firm puts in X amount of money. They're going to hold it for usually say five to seven years. They sell it. And how much money are they getting out? Now, because they've funded it with debt, they put in less cash than they would have to if they bought the, ca- the company 
outright. And if they're able to grow the business, their equity can grow pretty substantially, right? That's the the beauty of leverage. Mm -hmm. With that said, when you're looking at infrastructure, you will still have a lot of situations where you have an investor and they are building a bridge or they are building a toll road or they are, in my experience, I worked more on building either natural gas fire power plants or more in my case. I was worked in project finance right after this 2009 bill that gave a lot of money to green investments. And so there was a lot of money that went into solar. So you would still have a sponsor that would be looking to invest in a solar project, put Mm -hmm. in some amount of cash, and then they would borrow the rest, right? They would Mm -hmm. borrow. And why would a lender do that? And then this is the whole project financing situation. They do that because in order to actually get the financing, you're going to have to have something called like a power purchase agreement. You're going to have to have a signed contract saying that whatever, ExxonMobil or whoever it is, they're going to be paying for that power on the other end. Anyway, I'm kind of getting a little into the weeds, but the point is that if you are the equity investor, you're still going to do the IRR. It's 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 not called a leveraged buyout, but the sponsor still cares about what is the money I'm putting in? This project then goes through. What is the money I'm getting out? And so that's why I just want to make this distinction. Like the DCF is inherently a valuation methodology. The Leverage buyout is speaking to the financing techniques, but what we're talking about is that if you are doing an investment, you are still going to need to do this IRR calculation where you have a cash outflow because you're investing some money today. What are the cash flows I'm getting in the future? It could be cash flows that are coming in the future and you're not ultimately selling it. You're just getting this steady stream of cash flows. Or in the case of a private equity firm, you buy the company today, you sell it, you get a cash flow in the future. So it's potentially a little different, especially if the sponsor is going to put the money in and then kind of just let it ride right? They're just going to collect those cash flows. But you still would be doing an IRR analysis. In other cases, now, if you're looking at, say, an independent power producer, an IPP, and they're looking at building a solar farm, or they're looking at investing in a natural gas-fired power plant, they might look at it a little differently. They might have a hurdle rate. They might have, like, in order for this to make sense, we have to be over, say, like 11% or whatever it is. And so then in that case, you might say, well, this is my cash outflow if I do this deal. Um, I then am getting these cash flows in the future. If I apply some hurdle rate, again, I made it up 11%. Is this a NPV positive or negative? How much profit they need to make. No, no. What is the return they need to make? What is their internal like bogey? I mean, and a private equity firm could do the same thing. They could say, I'm going to, instead of an IRR, I'm going to do a NPV calculation and set my, you know, set the discount rate at 25%, right? It'd be like the same kind of analysis because Mm -hmm. what is the IRR versus NPV? The net present value is literally just saying, I have my cash flows and I'm just adding them all up. The IRR is telling you, okay, you have some cash outflow today, you have some cash inflows in the future. What discount rate? It's like if you think about like a seesaw and you have your little fulcrum and the cash outflow today is one side of the fulcrum, the cash inflows in the future are the other side. What is the discount rate that is going to make those two things equal, right? That the cash mm-hmm. outflow today equals the cash inflows in the future. But NPV, IRR, like they're kind of all doing the same thing. But I guess what I was trying to get the point here is that if you're doing infrastructure investing, you're not going to call it a leverage buyout. You still will often have projects that are financed with debt. If you have a sponsor putting in cash, they are still going to look at what is their return. So I think it was more of a clarification on some of these, the terminology here, Mm -hmm. because you will 
still do those investing calculations, you still would run a DCF. So you can run a DCF and an LBO at the same time. They're two different types of analyses. So just to sum it up, the mm-hmm. leverage buyout usually is a term that is reserved more for the corporate world. So it is mm-hmm. probably true that you might be told, oh, you're, we don't do leverage buyouts, right? You, you don't call them that. But the construction of this toll road, wind farm, solar plant, the financing of it still could be debt funded. And if you have a private equity investor or you know, if you just have an investor, they still are probably going to want to understand what is their return. Awesome. No, I think that makes it very clear. Awesome. And so honestly, the overwhelming majority of questions that we get are career oriented. You know, mm-hmm. I'm coming from this background. I'm looking to break into insert private equity, hedge fund, asset management, whatever it may be. You know, what do I do? How, how do I do it? So while we can't answer all of those questions, we did get one question that I think we should tackle here and that we will tackle again in a future episode. And this is from Jung Min on Instagram and also from Y on TikTok, asking about consulting versus banking in those early years right after graduation. So basically, one side of the question that we got was, hey, I'm a year out of college. I'm in consulting. I want to pivot into investment banking. And the other question was asking us to talk through the decision tree of deciding to go into consulting versus investment banking right out of college. So neither of us ever worked as consultants, as you probably know if you've listened to us before. We are going to do a future episode where we interview people who did work in consulting so you can hear their perspective explicitly. I did interview for consulting jobs. I think I had an offer in one. I interviewed my senior year and then discovered I didn't want it. So my super senior year, no, my fifth year, my master's degree, I didn't. But I think so many people are kind of in that camp of like, do I want consulting? Do I want banking? I know they're both like seen as these. And what the heck is the difference, right? Yeah. This sounds like something that smart, rich, fancy people do in New York City (laughs) right after they graduate. I don't know. That was probably my angle on it. I don't know much about it. It opens up doors for me. I want to preserve optionality. I'm going to do one of the two. That's exactly right. And again, I think there are a lot of similarities between investment banking and consulting. These are both apprenticeship model jobs. You learn on the job. Your actual well of information pertaining to the job prior to starting is not expected to be extensive. And again, on their surface, what you're doing in a consulting firm and what you're doing in the investment banking division, so IBD of an investment bank, do have a lot of similarities. You're looking at companies, you're analyzing them, you're really lifting up the hood, getting in the works, but the actual purpose of that investigation may be quite different. So at an investment bank, you're either advising that company on a big strategic direction or you're advising someone else on buying or selling that company. Mm -hmm. As a consultant, you are likely, and again, this will vary, but you're likely being hired by that company to take it in a strategic direction that may not necessarily just be, we need to raise capital. Mm -hmm. You might be saying, hey, you guys need to build that corporate headquarters in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now you're going to need to go hire an investment bank to help you raise those funds. But we're going to be the ones doing the analysis of why you need to open that headquarters in Charlotte with whom you are going to staff it, 
how big that operation should be, all that fun stuff. So that's kind of the difference of, mm-hmm. of how those two business models will approach a company. Now, what right. that means too, is that the nature of your day-to-day life is going to be very different. Yeah. So first of all, there are the daily mechanics of what you'll be doing as a junior person. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone's in Microsoft Office. The question is, are you in PowerPoint mm-hmm. or are you in Excel? In and banking, fun, you will yeah. do both. You'll yeah. definitely be doing PowerPoint presentations in banking but you are going to live in PowerPoint mm-hmm. as a consultant. And that's I feel like what, oh, yeah, consultants sort of take the amount of pride in PowerPoint that bankers take in Excel. Yeah. I mean, Kristen has talked about this before that in investment banking, again, in IBD proper, the speed with which you complete tests in Excel is a metric for your performance evaluation, is a way with which you rank yourself relative to your peers. That's simply not the case, even in the sales and trading side of a bank where Excel is also ubiquitous, like how fast you can convert a table (laughs) is no one cares. It's just, did you get the answer right? Because money is being made or lost if you didn't get the answer right. Whereas in banking, it is, you have to have the exact right format. Your decimals must be aligned. The color coding is essential. I mean, there must be periods on your footnotes, like every little detail people obsess over. Because that's what's being presented to the client. Exactly. A client is never going to see your spreadsheet. If they're seeing your spreadsheet on the sales and trading side, it's quite likely that something's gone terribly wrong. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, those are really used more for internal modeling purposes than they are for external client-facing purposes on the sales and trading side of a bank. Right. At a consulting firm, Excel can be a tool that you use to inform your analysis, but because it's so client-facing, it's much more things like PowerPoint decks where you are making a presentation about the strategic co- a direction a company should take itself in. Baby. And actually, I want to okay. share this quick story because yeah. my one of my best friends who we definitely have to have on, she went to undergrad with me, was an engineer, worked in engineering, went to HBS, came out, worked at McKinsey. I forget how long she was there for, but she's since left and she was joking with me. So she now has a, a PowerPoint course and she's like, one of the biggest things I got out of working at McKinsey is like, I am a PowerPoint ninja. And it's like, that's with your end banking, you come out, you're like, I'm an Excel ninja. (laughs) And so because they are both project-oriented, your timeline will often be quite similar. You could be working on something for months, if not years. However, your personal involvement in that project is going to be at a different level at an investment bank versus a consulting firm. So you're going to get all up in the financials, all up in the operating of a company from an investment bank and evaluating it for various purposes. At a consulting firm, you may end up having to move to whatever it is, West Virginia, where this company is located and have and be the physical boots on the ground for this project during the entirety of the project. All it's over. usually, yeah, it's usually they're traveling Monday to Thursday and then Friday they're back in their office yeah. you, and you don't know where the next one is going to be. Right. And they're not always in the big sexy places. You could yeah. be in. Oh no, they're, they're rarely in quote unquote sexy places. Like you're probably paying a lot of money for a New York city apartment. I mean, a lot of people are not going to live in New York city if they're a consultant, but if you are in the New York office, like that's where your offer is. And then now you are traveling, you'll be in your apartment, what, in your home two to three days a week or whatever. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you rack up a lot of miles. And by the way, don't discount the value of those miles. Miles are, points are. That is true. But it's a very, very different lifestyle. Yeah. So it is much more travel-based. And there are also different exit opportunities. So the exit opportunities from consulting do look a lot like the exit opportunities from investment banking, but they are 
not necessarily the same clear cut path. Yeah. So yeah, it might be a little harder. So you can get into say like private equity from consulting, but the recruiting process is a little different. The questions you'd ask a little is a little different. And I don't know that every single PE fund is going to hire someone out of consulting. Right. Whereas most of them would hire out of banking. It makes sense that if the goal of a private equity firm is to take a company and grow it into a more profitable one and then sell Mm -hmm. it, someone who is in the business of telling companies how to be more profitable, aka a consultant, certainly should have a lot of the requisite skills. However, your modeling knowledge and sense may not be as robust as someone coming out of the investment banking side. And that might be a skill set that you need to bridge. And Um, it's a different culture. I mean, I will say as someone who used to go, I used to teach bankers and I love teaching bankers. I love it. But honestly, the consultants, oh my gosh, they were always so nice. Well, listen, because it's a more client facing role at the junior level, as the junior analyst who's living in that Excel model all day in investment banking, the number of times you're actually asked to present to the CEO of the company is much fewer than being on a consulting team of three people and you're standing there because Mm -hmm. you're responsible for that PowerPoint deck. You know it better than anyone else. You may be standing there in the meeting presenting to the CEO of a company. It's funny, little known gen trivia fact. During COVID, I actually interviewed for a consulting role at a fintech firm in San Francisco because I was like, everybody's working from home. I can do it too. With no consulting experience, none other than you guys always ask what skills it takes to break into these industries. Apparently just like totally unjustified self-confidence and Mm -hmm. like no fear whatsoever. So I was like, yeah, I can interview for this job as like a senior fintech consultant. Why not? And it's funny because like I made it to the final round interview or whatever, and they had me present this case study and I presented the case study and I was like, I came up with this great idea. Let me tell you all about it. And they also made me do actually a speed Excel test, which Ah. I'm sure I failed. But the funny part of it was they gave me real-time feedback and they were like, it's very evident that you've never done this before. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah, but what does that matter? And they were like, to be like an analyst or hire you for like a senior role. It's very (laughs) evident that you've never worked as a consultant. I was like, correct. But like, I can learn it, right? And they were like, thank you so much for your interest in this position. (laughs) I was like, okay, fair Uh, enough. They're no longer in business for what it's worth. But it just goes to show you, you can be great with clients and that can get you a long way in consulting a lot farther than it can in other industries possibly. But like there are hard and fast skills that you will learn on the job that you don't learn in finance. Mm -hmm. And that clearly I never learned in all of my years. Uh, Yeah, exactly. It was PowerPoint. And no, but it's it's also about how to... I'm kidding. How to pitch something to the CEO of a company about the big strategic direction you're going to take that firm in. So we've touched a little bit on, obviously, the exit to private equity, which everyone's so fixated on right now. You also may end up finding yourself at the company for which you were consulting. Those are very incestuous relationships. Consultants go to companies. People end up having very long careers in these companies. Mm -hmm. And you also might find yourself in the startup world because you have valuable insight about how other people are doing it, right? And if you know how everyone else is doing it, you can advise a startup on what they're doing wrong, what they need to do to get up the curve faster, et cetera, et cetera. So finding yourself in some big strategic role at a corporation is a very common exit from consulting, as is starting your own company. There are a lot of people who go from consulting and not to the startup world as an advisor, but as the starter upper. 
So mm-hmm. <laughs> is there a better term for that than starter upper as an entrepreneur? entrepreneur. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> right. Jenna's forgotten what words mean. You can Our tell English that we're major. pretty tired here. Um, so <laughs> that we're just about out of time here. I hope you guys thought this Q&A episode was helpful. Please keep these questions coming. We'll continue to get to them in future episodes. Mm-hmm. And we're just so grateful for you guys. And if you want to submit questions, don't forget, you can do it at questions at wallstreetskinny.com. We also, as you can see, will often take questions we get on social media that we find interesting or just we can't answer them. We can't in answer a like 60 characters. 200 character little reply box. So that's why we chose but the ones that we did. that's why you should email us, guys, because if you send us a long form question in an email, then we can actually respond to it versus be like, we think in your 30 character thing, you mm-hmm. meant this. Yeah, definitely keep those coming. Um, And thank you guys as always. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 